Hey, Purpose Church, great to see you. We are going to have a wonderful time in God's Word today. Today we're continuing our 2023 series, which we're studying the 66 books of the Bible. In 52 weeks, we call this series, Jesus on Every Page. And then our current series within a series is on the four Gospels or biographies of the life of Jesus, and that's called the Jesus Movement. And the title for today's study as we come to the book of Mark is Mark, Jesus, Our Model of Compassion. Uh, the major themes of the book of Mark are compassion and urgency. Compassion and urgency. You know, when I was a kid uh, growing up in Virginia at our uh, Presbyterian church that I went to there in southern Virginia, uh, we have vacation Bible school. And one of the ways that I could score points for my team uh, at Vacation Bible School was to count the number of times the word immediately was used in the book of Mark. How many times is the word immediately used in the book of Mark? And I counted 41 times. 41 times the word immediately is used in the book of Mark. And yes, I was a Bible geek at an early age. Uh, this word in the English, immediately, is from the Greek word eutheos. And eutheos means without delay or hesitation. Um, immediately without delay, without hesitation, soon or directly. Uh, these are the words that describe the Jesus movement in the book of Mark. Compassion uh, without delay. Compassion without uh, hesitation. Without delay or hesitation. Compassion and urgency. And so with that in mind, I asked Dr. Ryan Montague to preach today. And you are in for a real treat and a great blessing. Ryan received his uh, doctorate from the University of Missouri and was a professor of communication management for over a decade in higher education, uh, specializing in emotional intelligence in personal and professional relationships. Uh, he's the author of two books. Uh, one is Divine Opportunity that you see right here. And the subtitle on this is Finding God in the Conversations of Everyday Life. Finding God in the Conversations of Everyday Life, Divine Opportunity. And then his uh, next book was Untapped Potential. Untapped Potential. And the subtitle was Moving from a, a Mediocre to a Miraculous Testimony. Moving from a mediocre uh, to a miraculous testimony, untapped potential. Uh, Dr. Montague is the founder of Divine Opportunity Ministries, and it is our privilege to have him with us today. So let's welcome uh, Ryan to Purpose Church uh, today as he shares uh, God's word with us. And before we do this, let's pray together. Lord, right now, I pray that our hearts will be open. I pray that my heart will be open to hear what you want to say through your servant. Lord, we're, we're anxious. We want to hear. We want it to, to change our lives. We want to be different this next week because of our encounter with you here the, today. And so we pray, Lord, that the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart are going to be pleasing in your sight. And we pray it in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.
Purpose Church, it is amazing to be here. I uh, thank Pastor Glenn for the invitation and the awesome intro. Uh, and I'm so excited to be joining you in this Jesus Movement series where we get to explore Jesus in the book of Mark. And if you don't mind, I'm just going to dive right in and actually read you something from the Jesus-centered Bible that, uh, that I have, and it's kind of my personal Bible for, for study purposes. And I love this intro because at the beginning of every single book in the Bible, they have Jesus in. In this case, it's Jesus in Mark. And it says this, Mark's gospel is a small volume packed with nonstop action and an undertone of rugged adventure. So far, it sounds like one of those like uh, movie uh, trailers where you can just do it in that deep, booming, powerful voice. As Jesus announces the coming of God's kingdom, though Mark records seasons of rest for Jesus, his account gives us a sense of constant motion. He pushes the story forward with great velocity from the edge of the Jordan River to the entrance of the empty tomb. Reading this gospel will take your breath away goes on to say, as I read this, the pages of this narrative, I notice a steady drumbeat of discipleship. Jesus is constantly asking people to follow him, to leave their fishing nets and their tax collecting booths and even their wealth generating exploits to join him in the greatest rescue mission ever launched. Like how thrilling and exciting does this sound? Continues. Jesus invites his followers to step out of their safe and conventional lives and enter into God's kingdom living. For many, that means walking away from family ties, respectable work, and comforts of home. Joining up with Jesus means you'll keep suspicious company, reinterpret Sabbath rules, and travel to off-limit places to transform enemies into neighbors. And there was, no, there was a good reason to be afraid for these disciples, for Jesus is blunt with his followers, warning them that life in this kingdom will involve suffering and dying. Following Jesus will put us between a cross and a hard place. Still, he urges us not to lose heart, to go the distance with him. Jesus invites us to pass through the empty tomb into the unknown of all of our tomorrows, to risk and trust and follow him into the greatest adventure of all time. Wow, I absolutely love that. And it's something that has become kind of the focus of Christianity for me is that I don't know about you, but you know, I kind of grew up uh, lukewarm Catholic, actually. I grew up Catholic, went to Catholic grade school through eighth grade, did the Catholic mass every single Sunday. And to really no fault of anybody there, I just happened to be, I think, kind of deceived, still had the veil over, but somehow missed the fact that this life of, of, of faith was one of great adventure. And one of the first people to actually introduce me to this idea as Christianity, as adventure, was my father-in-law, Dr. David Watson. And yes, he makes me call him that, the full thing, including the doctor. I'm just kidding. Uh, but he is this mighty man of God. He was a pastor and a Bible professor throughout his career. But he also, more importantly, had this ministry of divine appointments, where God would strategically put him in the lives of others to speak, to share, and to move in the hearts of these individuals. And one of the very first stories he shared was this story of the $20 bill. 
And he had shared how decades earlier he had been preaching at this youth conference. And it was this large kind of conference of about a thousand people. And he had prepared this message that he was ready to give. And, and he got a couple of minutes into his message when the Holy Spirit just prompted him to shift gears, to move in a new direction. And the Lord just highlighted this one young woman that was a few rows back in the middle of the aisle. And, and as, as the Lord did, he was like, God, what do, you, what do you want me to do? I've prepared this message. Where do you want me to go? What do you even want me to share? And the thought of this $20 bill illustration came to mind for him. And so sure enough, he stopped in the middle of his message, everything that he was doing. He said, you know, I've got to share something with you all. And so he took out this $20 bill from his wallet. And sure enough, he, he held it up and he said, how many of you would want this $20 bill? And of course, all their hands went up. So then he took it and he crumples it up. And he says, now how many of you would want this $20 bill? And of course, all their hands shoot up. So then he throws it down and stomps on it picks it up and says, now how many of you would still want this $20 bill? And he starts kicking it around the stage and really going after this thing. And he finally takes this $20 bill and he says, now this $20 bill, it's been crumpled up, it's been thrown down, it's been stomped on, it's been kicked around. How many of you would still want this $20 bill? And of course, all their hands still went up. And he says, why? And he goes down to this one young woman that God had highlighted out of the thousand and he gets right in front of her and he says, why? Why would you still want this after all that's been done to it? And she says, well, because its value hasn't changed. I can still use it. And he said, exactly. That's what God wants you to hear. And that's what God wants you to know right now in your life. That no matter what anybody has said to you, no matter what anybody has done to you, no matter how anybody has treated you or anything that has happened to you in the past is that your value has never changed and God can and will still use you. And so he took out a pen and he wrote down on this $20 bill, value, worth, and dignity. He said, I want you to remember this, that your value, worth, and dignity comes from God, not from people, not from possessions, not from achievements. And when you get that in your heart, it'll change everything. And so he passed off the $20 bill to her. And, and actually he was expecting to see her later in the, the conference and he never did. Never got the follow-up. And then he tells me the story from two decades later. So fast forward from that youth conference, two decades. And he's preaching at this church in, in Pennsylvania. And he, after his sermon, he prays for all these people. And there's kind of a line and that line dissipates. And, and eventually there's just this one distinguished looking woman standing in the back remaining. And so finally he sees her and says, you know, ma'am, how can I help you? And she says, well, actually you, you probably are not going to remember me but I heard on the radio that you were preaching here and I, I knew I had to come and tell you the rest of the story. He says, well, what is it? And she said, well, you know, two decades ago, 20 years ago, you were preaching at this youth conference and you gave this message of this $20 bill, which she still had to that day. She said, what you didn't know is that my parents were going through a horrible, you know, volatile divorce at that time. And here I was in, in high school and I went from being the A student to the F student. I went from being the good student to the bad student. I had completely lost my way because I was trapped between this tug of war of my parents and this brutal divorce. And I was just completely torn up in the, on the inside. But when you gave me that message of the $20 bill, I went home and I put it on my mirror. And every single morning when I woke up, I looked at that $20 bill and I was reminded of my value, worth, and dignity comes from God and not from people. And that completely changed the course of my life. 
And now I just wanted you to know that after all these years, I'm now the head pediatric surgeon at the main hospital in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And he was just blown away at what the Lord had done in this divine appointment, this divine encounter between him and this one young woman. And it was this, this great sign to me of this source of encouragement that this is a life of adventure. But the problem was, is that, you know, I saw him as, as this kind of anointed pastor, this anointed man of God, this kind of gregarious man of faith. And so much so that in his office, he always kept an Indiana Jones hat and whip that would remind him every single day that the life of faith is one of great adventure. But when I looked at him and I looked at all these other kind of mighty men of God like Reinhard Bonnke and, and Dan Moeller and Francis Chan and, and Daniel Kalenda, I always viewed it as, well, that's awesome for you. You know, good for you that pastors and missionaries and people like this are being used, but what about me? And I don't know if some of you have felt the same way. Like, yes, those stories are amazing. I'm so glad that other people have them, but what about me? And that's where Dan Moeller, you know, because I have, I have kind of a history of being introverted and shy, even though it may not look like it from, from a stage per se. But he, he, he kind of made this declaration and said, well, are you introverted or do you have Christ in you? And it was like, wow, that kind of cuts to the core. And so then as I began to actually, in my doctoral work, I began to research divine appointments and missed opportunities because I wanted to see, are these for everyday Christians or just for these mighty men of God? And so I started interviewing people. And in this process of exploring this, I came across a quote from Dr. Martin Buber, who is a philosopher in this area of kind of these divine appointments, these spiritual conversations. And he said something I'll never forget. He said that there are no gifted or ungifted but it simply comes down to those who give themselves versus those who withhold themselves. Wow. Because, you know, I had made it like these guys have a gifting. These guys have an anointing. But it was this eye-opening realization that really the difference between experiencing a divine appointment and not a miracle or missing one is simply, are you going to give yourself over to this moment and to God? Or are you going to withhold yourself from this person and, from with, and with God? That's the difference maker. Because all those years growing up for decades of my life and faith, I always just kind of viewed myself, well, I'm a sinner saved by grace. And you've probably heard some people say that. But we also have to realize, we, yes, that may be true, but you're also so much more. That's when engaging with the word of God, we, real, we realize that we are a holy people. We are a chosen nation. We are God's special possession. We are part of a royal priesthood. So we cannot just say we're a sinner saved by grace because that is not honoring of God. It is not honoring of the price that was paid for, for you to be able to go from sinner to saint. And all those decades of growing up in the faith, the thing that I realized is that I had made lukewarm Christian friends my model for Christianity rather than making Christ himself the model for Christianity which was a huge, huge error, is that happens to, I think, so many people, is that we view Jesus as this God-man who is, who is, we can't possibly live up to his expectation or to his lifestyle. But yet when we read in scripture, I want to read you some verses here. In Mark 1.17, Jesus says, come follow me and I will show you how to fish for people. 
He says, come follow me, Jesus Christ, not your friends, not your Christian neighbors. Follow Jesus. He's the model. Mark 8, 34 says, if anyone wants to be my follower, they must deny themselves, pick up their cross and follow me. Those that cling to this life will lose it, but those that give up their life for my sake will find it. It's this idea of following Jesus. In 1 John 2, 6, I love this verse. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. That makes it plain as day. And if that's not good enough for you, Philippians 2, 5 says, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had, the same mind of Christ. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 says, imitate God, not imitate your parents, not imitate your neighbor, not imitate your peers in the faith, imitate God. Therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children, live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma. Imitate God. So in this, we're going to be exploring Jesus Christ as the model for Christianity, which sounds pretty obvious. But when I realized this after decades worth of being a Christian, I was just like, Jesus Christ is the model of Christianity? You got to be kidding me. How did I miss this? And I'm embarrassed to say that I did, but I did. And that's where I want to look at the patterns of Jesus for divine opportunities and divine appointments. From Mark chapter 1, this is verse 40 to 45, if you want to flip open in your Bibles to there. Mark chapter 1, 40 to 45, and it says this. A man with leprosy came and knelt in front of Jesus, begging to be healed. If you are willing, you can heal me and make me clean, he said. Moved with compassion, Jesus reached out and touched him. I am willing, he said, be healed. Instantly, the man with leprosy, his leprosy disappeared and the man was healed. Then Jesus sent him on his way with a stern warning. Don't tell anyone about this. Instead, go to the priest and let him examine you. Take along the offering required in the, the law of Moses for those who have been healed of leprosy. This will be a public testimony that you have been cleansed. But the man went and spread the word, proclaiming to everyone what had happened. As a result, large crowds surrounded Jesus, and he couldn't publicly enter a town anywhere. He had to stay out in secluded places, but people from everywhere kept coming to him. I love this depiction. And when Jesus gives us some prime examples to follow, if we want to engage in divine appointments, divine opportunities, not just like other Christians, but like Jesus. So I've come up with this little bit of a, a equation for divine opportunities. And it looks something like this, that when you have curiosity plus compassion and courage and the touch on individuals, it will lead to divine opportunities, divine appointments, not just in the lives of people perhaps on a stage, but in the hearts and the lives of every single believer that's willing to give themselves rather than withhold themselves. So I wanna start with curiosity. What does curiosity look like? Well, it's just simply asking why questions. But first of all, it's putting down your phone. 
and, and actually having your head up and your eyes out looking and soaking in and taking in people that are crossing your paths, whether it be at Walmart or it be at Starbucks or be at work, wherever you might be is that there are people that God is putting in your path that need a word of encouragement, a touch from heaven, a prayer, whatever it might be. If we are willing to, to make eye contact and to, to humanize the very individuals that are passing our, our crossing our paths. And actually having curiosity of what's going on in their life, Lord. What might they need prayer for? What might be happening deep inside of them? And where does this curiosity come from? It comes from love. And why is that? Because a first love, when if you recall falling in love for the first time, you are extraordinarily curious to an obsessive degree about this person. You're willing to do whatever it takes to spend more time with them, to talk to them longer, because you're just curious and you want to be involved in their life as much as possible. Well, that's why the first greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Be obsessed with God and the love of God. Then love your neighbor as yourself. I want you to be curious about me, God says, and then be curious about others because it flows from this place of love for people and their lives, their spirits, their souls, their eternity is where this comes in. And what curiosity does, I love this quote from Henry Longfellow, who was a professor in the late 1800s, early 1900s. But he said this about being curious. He said, if we knew the secret history of even our enemies' lives, we would likely find so much suffering and sorrow that it would disarm all hostility and instead produce compassion if we knew the secret history of the lives of that person next to you in Starbucks, that person in front of you in line at Walmart, you would likely find so much suffering and sorrow that would produce ridiculous levels of compassion with this. And this is where we just need to hear the heart cry of the people because even in Mark chapter 10, verse 51, with, with blind Bartimaeus, it says this, as he heard that Jesus was coming and passing, he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He had this verbal cry, but the people around us have this silent cry of their hearts. And whether they know who they're crying out to or not, it's Jesus. They're crying out for mercy and grace and transformation and love. And we have this opportunity like Jesus to say, what would you like Jesus to do for you? Jesus, to blind Bartimaeus, he said, what would you like me to do for you? And what we're curious about is what do they need Jesus to do in their lives? And this has been the, the touching point. The more that I've stepped out in faith and, and stepped into these divine appointments of my own is that I've had these moments of deep realization of compassion for people. Because one time I was uh, going with a, a group and we would go to the Azusa Metro and we would just kind of go around and, and, you know, meet with people and connect with people and hopefully be able to pray for people, if not share the gospel with people. And me and my buddy Candelario were there and we were praying for this security guard who was on break. And, and we were talking with him and got a chance to, to pray with him. And just then, as we were doing that, this woman had, dri had driven by and parked across the, the parking lot from us. And as we left this young man and started walking back, she got out of her car and she approached us and said, I saw you praying for that man. You know, would you be able to pray for me? And we said, absolutely. You know, what do you need prayer for? And she said, well, my son, he's, he's extremely addicted to heroin. 
and he's been in and out of treatment centers and he's been in and out of homelessness and he's back on the streets again and I have no idea where he is or if he's even still alive. But if you could pray for me. And what we found out is that this woman, this poor mother, when she gets off work on Fridays and Friday afternoons, she'll go to different metro stations in the area and just look for her son. She says, I mean, can you even imagine the heart cry of a mother just showing up randomly at metro stations, just looking for her son. And we had this opportunity, this, this blessing to be able to lay hands on her and pray for her right then and there. But what that did was that was a moment for me. I don't know how much it meant to her, but what it meant for me was this realization of deep compassion that we have no clue what the people are going through that are around us. And yet so much of the time, we're just in our own world buzzing right by or on our phones, scrolling through social media or whatever it might be. And we miss these sorts of opportunities. And so that takes us from this curiosity and you can see how this leads into compassion for people. Because Jesus, it says in multiple spots throughout the gospels that he was moved by compassion. I promise you as someone that has been struggling to step out in faith for far too many years. I have studied this. I've looked into this to figure out what is the healthiest way to be motivated to step out into that space the most often with the, with the, the right mindset and the right heart posture and it's compassion and love. It's the, the way that will get you started. You cannot be stepping out from a place of fear but one of love and compassion. And when you get that, that's what will send you out again and again because you're gonna have all these stories and experiences of the past. Remember when I stepped out there and I didn't think anything was gonna happen and God showed up. Remember when I looked at them and I, they looked like they had it all together. There's no way this person is struggling with anything. And then they wrecked me with the need in their life that I couldn't possibly imagine. And that's this place of compassion. Where does it come from? Well, it comes from the fact that for a few decades, you know, I was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see the word of God, the love of the Lord, the realities of, of heaven and of hell. That I was that person that desperately needed somebody to step out into my life and to take an interest, to be curious and to move in truth. And so what we want to do, and this is one of the keys that goes with compassion, is that when we really get the gospel in our heart, and I love what Dan Muller says about the word of God. He says, don't read the word of God to get through it. Read it to become it. And when I got a hold of that, when I started reading the Bible to actually become it, it started to shave off all these rough areas of my life and my mindset and my thinking. And what it's done is it's left me unoffendable. Unoffendable. And offense and compassion go together. Is that when you are offended by somebody, the last thing you're gonna have for them is compassion. So we have to be careful that we don't allow our hearts to harden or for us to be uh, filled with, with this animosity or filled with any of this offense towards people because it will ruin our ability to have love and compassion. And that's what we need daily. And there's three things that, that helped me to understand the, what it means to love and to be unoffendable. And the first one was when Jesus was on the cross 
having suffered the greatest offense you could possibly imagine, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It was this eye-opening realization that forgiveness is because these people are deceived. They're deceived by the enemy. They still have the veil covering their face. They don't receive and understand the truth. If they did, they wouldn't have ever acted like that. If they knew who they were in Christ and started thinking and acting from that place of Christ-likeness, they would have never thought that. They would have never said that to you. They never would have done that to you. The only reason that they did is because they don't know who they are in Christ and they need someone who does to be rooted and anchored and unoffended because they know that this person is simply deceived and now I don't have to retaliate. I don't have to defend and justify. I don't have to counter criticize. I can simply sit in that knowing, and here's the other thing, is that we learned this in a parenting seminar with, with, our, with our child who's kind of given us a hard run for our money, but they said this, they said, your child isn't giving you a hard time. They're having a hard time. And that one line changed everything for my wife and I, not just with our son, but with everybody. That when you come across somebody, they're not giving you a hard time. You change it to, they're having a hard time. It's the whole idea of hurt people, hurt people. So if there's someone stepping out trying to hurt me, I know that it's coming from a place of hurt. And I don't have to be baited into that. I can remain firm and steadfast. I can be unoffended. And because of that, I can have great compassion for people. And that's what, uh, again, we were, at, uh, we were walking around that Azusa metro area. And this was a week or two later. And, and we saw this young guy walking out. And he kind of had a bag of, of stuff and, you know, was kind of just walking down towards the metro and, you know, didn't have a shirt on, just this vest. And we were just kind of curious as to what was going on with this young guy. And sure enough, we kind of went over to talk to him and introduced ourselves. And he had told us that the reason he had a bag, that was actually his possessions, that they had just given back to him because he had just gotten released from three days in jail. He had just spent the last three days in jail. And this guy was only 19 years old. And he shared with us in this time that he knew that this was a wake-up call for him because recently he had lost his three closest, nearest, dearest friends to gun violence and gang violence. They were three, all three were, were, were murdered and gone. And he saw his future in that. And so when we stopped and spoke with him and, and shared the gospel with him, and we ended up giving him an opportunity to accept Christ, which he did. And we had this opportunity to actually pray the, the, the prayer to, to bring him into Christ. And I love what Dan Muller says. He says, people don't say a prayer to get into heaven. You say that prayer so that heaven can get into you. And that's what we tried to really bring to him that day. And we gave him the, the Bible and we bookmarked it with the book of John. And we had this opportunity to really pour into his life for like 15, 20 minutes and send him off with having come out of jail for three years and in three minutes of being released, he was brought to Christ. And that's one of the greatest honors that God could give us when we're curious and we have compassion and we're moving in this kind of a way. But the reason that most people don't do this is this next part is that it requires courage. But here's the good news is that it only requires 20 seconds of courage. 20 seconds of courage. The hardest thing about these divine appointments is simply starting them. It's that hard part from walking across from where you are to where they are and simply putting out a hand, extending an invitation, getting a name, and then being curious and to see where the Lord moves. But this courage, why is it so required? Well, because one of our greatest fears as humans is the fear of social rejection. It's the fear of social, uh, social death. 
is that what that's done is that the enemy knows this and he's used this against us. We fear being rejected. We, we fear that vulnerable space of putting ourselves out into the lives of others and being turned down, being rejected, whether that be for a romantic relationship or for a divine appointment. The fear is the same. And we've been conditioned to be able to step back and move away from that, to not insert or subject ourselves to this uncomfortable space. And what the enemy has done is that in our day and age, he has shrunk our comfort zone to the length of the phone in our hand. And we're only comforted and only as comfortable as we are to being in a device. And we're more comfortable and we've got this keyboard courage when it comes to our technology, but when it comes to stepping beyond the comfort zone to actually engage personally, one-on-one with people, eye to eye, face to face, all of a sudden we have this fear overwhelm us and we begin to talk ourselves down. And I'm here to tell you for so many years and still to this day, there are times when I talk myself out of seeing miracles. And there's this song that, that says those verses and it pierced my heart a couple weeks ago when I heard it. And it's more than able by elevation worship, but this line, I I keep talking myself out of seeing miracles. When we withhold ourselves, we're withholding ourselves from seeing and experiencing a miracle, the great adventure of God. And so we've gotta be willing to overcome that because it's painful seeing an opportunity, knowing that God may wanna do, speak, share, touch, transform in this moment. And for whatever reason, because we whisper those lies of this'll be a a distraction. I don't wanna step on anybody's toes. I don't wanna offend anybody. What will they possibly think? What if they're not open to this? The enemy has all these lines just ready to go so that it keeps us from ever stepping out of our comfort zone. And I'm here to tell you that the the place where I experience God the most profoundly in my life is outside of the comfort zone. It's outside of the comfort zone where you experience what it truly means to trust and have faith in God, to surrender, to be fully dependent, to be out on the water. That's why when Jesus came walking on water, there was only one disciple that was willing to step out onto the water is that they were already uncomfortable on the boat, let alone being out on the water. But that's the space where we experience God the most profoundly, and that's exactly why the enemy wants us to steer clear of that. He wants us to stay secluded in this little comfort zone space so that we miss opportunities because of the fear of social rejection. And what this has done is that it's created a hypersensitivity where we don't want to offend. We don't want to push anybody too far. And we've become so sensitive that it's caused us to become too cautious to even be effective as Christians. So you've got to be so careful with this. And then the overthinking is that I've been here and I'm guilty of this, the overthinking. Sometimes we think, well, I need to read one more book. I need to dive deeper into the word. I need to have all the right answers in case they ask me this. What if they ask about pain and suffering and why God you know, allows bad things to happen to good people? Heaven forbid I'd be forced to ask and, and answer any of these questions. As we overthink and what we've done in church spaces is that we have become the overfed sheep. 
We have been the sheep that have been so overfed with teaching and training, but we never actually go out. We never actually receive the sending to go out into people's lives. And as a result of that, we miss out on so many opportunities. And the reality is, is that there, the difference here is souls going to heaven or souls going to hell. And somehow I completely missed it for far too long and now I'm just on this mission to try to share and encourage and push the sheep out of the the trough and out into the pasture, out into the harvest field for the harvest is ripe but the workers are few. And I heard this, this pastor, Kevin Thompson, recently asked this question. He said, are you excited to be a Christian in California in 2023? And it completely changes our whole depiction and understanding because so many people want to badmouth California or they're, they're ready to leave and flee California. But his point is that the harvest is ripe. We live in a state where the harvest is crazy ripe, but the workers are few or the workers are frozen in fear and unwilling to step out in faith. And so we've got to be able to, to do this and to do just that. Because even when uh, there was a time where I was, I was taking my, my youngest to, to school and the way that we were parked, we ended up kind of taking a road we don't normally take through our neighborhood to go to our school. And as we, we turned right and went down this road, I saw this woman trying to get into her car and she had these crutches and, and she looked actually pregnant. And so she was trying to get into this car with crutches and, and, and being pregnant. And, and again, it just kind of touched my heart. And so we, we pulled over, we actually swung back around and parked. And me and my daughter, who is I think five at the time, we, we got out, we went over to her. And again, we're just curious hey, you know, I just saw you. Is everything okay? Do you need any help with anything? And she explained that she was pregnant. She was actually three weeks away from her due date. And not only that, but she had dislocated her knee and her knee had not gone back in properly. And so she was still in all this pain, this giant brace and these crutches trying to get in. And so I just asked her, hey, can I pray for you? Can I pray for healing in your knee? And she said, absolutely. And so I said, would it be okay if I actually, you know, put my hand on your knee and and touched it? And she said, sure. And so with my daughter there, I kind of knelt down and I put my hand on her knee and I prayed in Jesus' name that it would be healed and he would give her a brand new knee and all the pain would be gone because she had said that she had about like a level eight pain. And so I pray and so I come up and I say, you know, well, go ahead and check it. And so she checks her, she checks her knee. Nothing happened in case you were waiting for like this crazy here. <laughs> Sorry, nothing happened. So I go, okay, well, can I pray one more time? And so I, I put my hand on her knee and I pray again and I go after it and I come up and I say, you know, go ahead and check it. Has anything changed? Nothing's changed. And at this point, you know, I'm a little bit kind of frustrated, but I'm like, well, let me just pray for you in general. And so I just wanted her to see and know that she was touched and by God, not by me, that she was seen and loved and cherished by her heavenly father, not just somebody driving through a neighborhood. And so I prayed over her and then uh, we helped her into her car and we kind of left and took off. Well, actually, fast forward now three months. Three months later after that event, I'm sitting in my car and I'm actually texting before I take off and leave. And as I'm sitting in my car texting, I see this car kind of zip past and then just kind of reverse and park. And then the door opens and this person gets out. And sure enough, this woman from three months earlier, she walks over to my door and I roll down the window and she says, there you are. She says, I've been look- I didn't know where you live, but I've been looking all over for you, hoping that I would be able to catch you because I wanted you to know that three days after you prayed for me, my knee was healed and the brace came off and I was able to, to give birth to my daughter 
just days later or week, just a week or two later and both baby and myself are healthy and I wanted to thank you so much for stopping to pray for me. And sometimes God gives us these just little windows into people's lives where God didn't have to give me that second look. He didn't have to give me the the rest of the story, but he was so gracious and kind that he did. Because otherwise I'd be here just telling you about a a non-healing story. But instead, it was indeed a healing story. I just didn't get to see it in the moment. And and the reason I love that story is because it's a reminder that, yes, we're stepping into this vulnerable space. Yes, this is crazy hard. And yes, it takes courage that 20 seconds to overcome ourselves, die to ourselves, and be Jesus for this person in this moment. But when we do, whether we see healing or we don't, whether we see this person be brought to tears or accept Christ or not, we know that some plants, some water, but God makes things grow. So even when we don't see the growth in that moment, we take courage, we take faith that a seed was planted that day because I was willing to speak the name of Jesus. I was willing to pray in the name of Jesus. And this person went from knowing that they had a good conversation with a good guy to a godly conversation with a godly guy. And that's where we see this transformation, which brings in the the final point, which you hear of, which I've already kind of explained already, is the touch, the physical touch of actual people. Are you willing to get your hands dirty for Jesus Christ? Are you willing to get up close and personal with people to see what the Spirit of God may be doing? Because in that touch, there's something powerful that we see in Jesus' ministry, that he touched people, he got close to people, he got intimate with people. But he did so with compassion and love and grace and mercy. And as a result of that, those people felt seen and heard and valued and touched. And that's what produced the transformation. So this question for you is what would Jesus be willing to do or what would Jesus do for people if you were willing? What would Jesus do for people if you were willing? Not our question is, is Jesus going to be willing? That's why we're hesitant to pray because I don't know if he's going to heal. Is Jesus willing or not? And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. Are you willing to step out in faith, to speak a word of prayer, regardless of the results. I want you to love without the over-obsession of the results. Leave the results up to him. And it's our role to just step out in obedience. And here's one final word that I think we really have to take to to heart. And it's this question that that God has put on, on my heart and on my mind of, is Jesus just a drama king or is he the king of kings? Because Jesus says some hard stuff. Anybody that puts their hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. Yes, you may have healed and prophesied in my name, but I'll say, get away from me for I never knew you. Is that Jesus says some hard stuff, even including Mark 8, 38, where he says, if anyone is ashamed of me and my message in these adulterous and sinful days, The son of man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in the glory of his father with the holy angels. What's it going to be for us? Is the reason that we're withholding ourselves because we're afraid, we're ashamed of the name of Jesus and how people are going to respond to that? 
Because we have to decide, was Jesus just being dramatic? Was he just being a drama king about it all? Or is he the king of kings? And he was deadly serious about the work and the ministry of believers to say, if you're ashamed of me, then I'll be ashamed of you. And I can't take that chance. I can't allow that to even be on the table. Is that I can't be so comfortable talking about Jesus from a stage and uncomfortable talking about Jesus out in the real world. There's a problem with that. And that's the conviction on my heart is that you can't just, it doesn't matter how good you preach in here. Yes, this is, this is an honor and a privilege to be here. But if all I do is give a, a good word and a good message, and then I go out and live my life as normal, as regular, and I miss out on opportunities, and I withhold the name of Jesus from people, I can't live with myself, and I can't live that way. And this is the spirit of conviction that God has put on my heart, that the stakes are high when it comes to this. Eternity is riding on this. And, and I know that might sound in, you know, a little bit intense of the, to be ashamed of him and him ashamed of us at the, end of, at the end of the days. But this is what the spirit of God put on my heart is that he said, it's okay to elicit fear and trembling when it comes to these divine opportunities. Just make sure that they know that that fear and trembling is directed towards God and that that fear and trembling produces and initiates intimacy that we would repent and turn to God for the kingdom of heaven is near. Not repent and turn away, it's turn near. Draw near to him and he will draw near to you. And so that's that place that he will turn our fear and trembling into faith and boldness. And that's what I wanna pray. Dear heavenly father, Lord, you know every single person that is watching this message, that is being challenged and convicted not just by me, but by the Holy Spirit. So Lord, I pray that this would turn them into intimacy, turn them towards you, that they would love you and adore you and, and go into an intimate space so that you can fill them with your love, fill them with your curiosity, your compassion, so that they can have the faith to walk by faith and not by sight to walk by faith and not by feelings, to take courage in Christ and step out. And Lord, you will move, you will touch, you will transform. And every single person that's willing to step out will experience more of your goodness, more of your divine appointments, more of your opportunities. Because those that sow sparingly reap sparingly. But the good news is those that sow generously will reap generously because you're a good and gracious God, faithful forevermore. So Lord, we praise you. We thank you. And it's in Jesus' mighty name that we say, amen.